Okay, hello and uh, welcome to this week's TES podcast. Uh, I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Will Stewart. Hi, Will. Hi. By um, Gwanya Hallahan, who is a teacher who's writing for our features department at the moment. Hello. Hello. And welcome to your first podcast. Thank you very much. And from Yorkshire, we're beaming in John Roberts. Hi, John. Hello there. Um, so, lots to talk about today. Um, I thought we'd kick off, actually, with one of your stories, John. Um, the Global Teacher Status Index, which is um, quite a big piece of international work. They don't do it every year, but it's shown some really interesting stuff about teachers in the UK. Um, do you want to talk us through it? Yeah, so it's, um, it's the second one they've done. They did one in 2013. Um, it basically looks at how teachers are perceived by the public um, in 35 countries across the world. Um, I think two of the things that stand out about what the British public think about teachers in, in the UK is that they underestimate how hard they work, how long they work, and they underestimate how much they overestimate how much they're paid. Rather, so one of the things that the study found is that uh, British teachers work over 50 hours a week, according to the responses they got. And that was the highest in Europe and the fourth highest of the, the 35 countries in the world. But the British public actually estimated it at 45 hours. And then that, that trend's repeated again on pay, where the British public imagined that a teacher's starting salary would be close to 30,000, when in fact the survey shows it's sort of 24 and a half. Um, and it also goes on to say that the British public think that's unfair and that they think a starting salary should be in excess of 29,000. So effectively, that new teachers should be earning seven and a half thousand more than they are um another interesting finding in it though is that um there's a declining number of people who would recommend to their children that they should become a teacher um so in 2013 it's only a small decline but it's kind of a it's one of only a handful of countries where the direction of travel is is, is going backwards five years ago 26 percent of people said they'd recommend or or maybe recommend becoming a teacher to their to their children that's dropped to 23 percent so it kind of paints, I think, a slightly bleak picture in a way of um, a that British teachers work longer than a lot of counterparts in other countries, but also that perhaps that their their efforts aren't entirely understood by the public. That both they overestimate how much teachers earn and underestimate how long they work for. But at least I think they should have a pay rise. Mm. So there's, well, yeah, there's one upside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure the unions won't be won't be slow to you know, use that to justify their case. Um, well, it, it, it just chimes with so many stories we have, really, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's it's a, if nothing else, it's a consistent picture. Teachers are are working really hard, but yeah, and I mean, and those misconceptions. So the idea that we're paid more than what we are, but also the most common thing that I had when I when I was teaching, was that um, my friends would often think that I could just book time off during the term, and well, that during the school during term. the school term, and that would be okay. Can't you just book that off work? Would they not just get a sub in? <laughs> It's like, no, you're not, you're not allowed holidays during the school term. And silly things like school trips. Right. So often parents will think that on a school trip you get given that time back in lieu or that you're paid extra for giving up your holiday to do a school trip. And obviously that's, that's not true. And there's, uh, it's that everybody thinks they know what it's like to be a teacher because they themselves went to school. Yeah. But actually... The only people that know what it's like to be a teacher is generally is teachers, and in, unless you have a member of uh, a member of your family who's a teacher or a close friend who's a teacher, you might not know about those little things that teachers sacrifice and they give up, unless you've 
you're actually told about it. D did you get that thing a lot from, from non-teachers who say, well, you get these you know, six-week holidays in the summer? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Drive, but, drive but, you mad. Book tomorrow off, but and you've got really long holidays. Yeah, 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 yeah. this idea that the summer holidays are really long and you can do what you want and most of the time you're you're preparing for the September, especially when you're a new teacher. I think the longer you're in teaching, the easier it is to plan and prepare. However, of course, with all the curriculum changes, that, that goes out of the window sometimes. But when you're an NQT or a recently qualified teacher, your summer holiday is spent on your own subject knowledge and preparing for the your classroom, like the physically, like going in and clearing out your classroom. A lot of my friends who are primary school teachers, so that's a huge chunk of their six-week holiday, mm. and um, it's a bit of a bit of a myth. Yeah, we've had done research recently, haven't we, or, or seen research which said that even when you include you know, the summer holidays, yeah. teachers work longer hours than average than what police and nurses or doctors. Yeah. So yeah. even with that big chunk of mm. holiday, it's not enough to, to compensate. Mm. So would you recommend teaching to a, a younger generation? Okay, then, um, when, when I was saying about that, I was thinking, my daughter, um, she pretends to be a teacher and she, she role plays, she's only six. Yeah. And um, I was th she says that she wants to be a teacher sometimes because obviously I'm a teacher and, and uh, her dad, my husband's a teacher. And a little bit of me thinks, oh. <laughs> and I come from a family of teachers. Yeah. My mum's a teacher, all my aunts are teachers, my little brother's a teacher. You know, it's, it's something that I always thought I would want her to, and I, and I would encourage. And I say, oh, that's lovely. That sounds, that sounds really nice. But. But, yeah, is it, is it the route to all happiness? I'm not sure. <laughs> Possibly not. Possibly not. Um, I mean, another, another story, continuing story that's come up again this week is, is school funding. And there are lots of threads to this, um, mm -hmm. but one was we had um, a big DfE report looking at all of the academy counts all put together, showing there's a big increase in the number of academies in deficits. Mm. We've had um, more complaints that the teachers' pay rise hasn't been fully funded, mm. and we had unions at the select committee this week saying that the national funding formula that's coming in isn't giving schools the, the minimum funding they need, and it's going to take too long to actually get them to the you know, the higher funding that the, the government's own formula says they need. Mm. Um, that's just going to run and run and run, that story, isn't it? Um, it, it every week there's, there's another angle that comes up showing the pressure on schools and the pressure on, on their funding. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, and all, I mean, you've kind of got the three problems that all work work to make, work to exacerbate the other because obviously the, the funding makes it harder to, to increase teachers' workload, which makes mm. it harder to recruit. And then, and, and, the, and the workload itself, yeah. and then all your money spent on supply teachers, mm -hmm. and then trying to um, trying to plug those gaps. It's very expensive when you're when you're trying to recruit and you're paying all that money out, and it's not going to to help the budget. I mean, one interesting thing I, I saw was the is it three of the teaching unions say they're coming together and they're going to have a it unprecedented they say consultation of their members to decide what to do over the chancellor's budget last week. The fact it didn't give lots of funding for schools, and that much derided phrase that the <laughs> little extras. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how realistic does anyone think this, this idea there might be? Could we see your union industrial action strikes nationally over over school funding? I think, I think the bar is so high because you because under the new union rules, you you have to get a big turnout, and, you, and I can't remember what the exact figures are, mm. but it but it's. It was difficult anyway before these new rules came along came along to actually get sustained industrial action that would make a difference. Mm. Um, 
because you know it's not just getting one strike out, or, or, or you have to you have to keep going to to really win the public over. So no, I, I mean I, I'll, I'll be sceptical. I, I think it'll mm. you, you need to get a lot of teachers on side, and and I think even with things as they are at the moment, I think it'll be quite hard to mobilise. And they can't afford to to lose a day's pay to go on strike. There's yeah. a lot of teachers, and lots mm. of my friends have got young children. They've got to pay for the childcare. You can't afford to, to lose a day's wage to go mm. on strike. It's less appealing than ever. I thought it was interesting that I think in the, is it the further education sector, th- th- they've been trying to get a national mm. strike and they, they couldn't reach the threshold. Mm. But they, they reached a threshold in maybe three or four individual colleges, I think. So again, I think that showed mm. you know, the challenges. It's more of a kind of battle for public opinion, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, I think that kind of thing is, is what's likely to make the difference because that's what forces ministers to act and to, to try and find some money. I mean, it, it's how, how the papers cover it. It's how, how the public view it. I mean, you know, if there is a school funding was a fairly big issue in the last election, it doesn't appear to have made that much difference, mm. but it, it, it made some difference. But that's I wonder probably. if that, that, that BBC Two programme at school that just started airing. I was just thinking about I that. Mean, could, could that really change things and, and make it mm. different for, for the public? Something like that, if it really captures their imagination. There was a line in that when it said, if parents knew what was going on inside the schools, they would be horrified. They would be revolting. Like it's, it's that they send the children in and children come back sometimes with stories and they must take it with a pinch of salt. But yeah. going into a class and there's not enough chairs for kids to sit down, there's not enough money for, for textbooks, for everyone to have a textbook, it's, it, it, it is very different to when I was at school, to when mm. we were at school. The, the budgets are definitely... The kids are feeling it. Yeah. as well as the, the staff. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of story that we're all used to hearing, obviously, because, because we're, you know, mm. talking to schools and teachers all the time. But I think, yeah, if it... I mean, that was primetime TV, wasn't it? Yeah. So if it's playing to a lot of people, and it, I'd be interesting to see whether they keep going on that theme, mm. because it could do. Absolutely. It, it felt to me with the, the little extras thing that, that the fact that you used that language showed that there's a way to go for... Because, as you say, we speak to people in the teaching unions in the classroom all the time, and there's, like, a... A consensus that there's a school funding crisis, but there's no way that the Chancellor would have said we're giving some little extras to the NHS. Do you mean he would have mm. instinctively known that's language you couldn't use? Mm. Um, and yet the fact that he felt able to say that shows that the kind of the scale of the funding issues in schools, politicians either aren't don't fully grasp them mm. or feel like they don't need to fully worry about them because the, it's not a kind of massive voting issue in the way that if he if he said that about the NHS, it would have been like tenfold the outcry I would have thought. To be fair, he probably wouldn't say the same thing this week, would he, after the publicity he did get? Well, I don't know. Absolutely true. Well, I watched him at the Treasury Select Committee on Monday, and Mm. he he said he was surprised by the reaction, but he was still these sort of dismissive, patronising lines. Yeah. If if this school thinks it's not worth having this this money, well, I'm sure the school down the road will happily take it. You You thought it wasn't the sort of sympathetic language that you'd give to... NHS funding or A&E departments or no. mental health or all these things. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, in schools, it's it's becoming really... It's, it's crucial that they need that money. It's not it's not going to be flippant about. Mm. I'm not saying it's life or death, but I'm, there, there are children that are, that are missing out on a good education and the education they deserve because of the budget cuts. And mm. to call it little extras is patronising. Yeah. Um, now, John, you've got a, a really interesting piece in the magazine today um, about what it's like to be a teacher in a multi-academy trust and lots of tensions here about when things are, are done centrally and how much autonomy individual teachers have in their classrooms. What, have you sort of, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so I suppose we lots has been written about over the last five, ten years about how the school landscape has changed and the kind of growth of academies, growth of multi-academy trusts. But I suppose we wanted to have a look at what that meant for teachers at an individual level in, inside the classroom, particularly in multi-academy trusts where decision-making is driven from the centre, where there's a kind of a an approved curriculum, an approved set of qualifications, uh, a kind of a, uh, and even in the most kind of extreme cases, if you like, approved lessons. So where where lesson plans are, are scripted, where there's a an approved sequence of, of how and what's taught. Um, and the, as with so much in education, very much found two perspectives on this. There's some people who believe it's stifling teachers' creativity and taking away their autonomy. Um, uh, one teacher we spoke to said that he feel, felt like a robot could do large chunks of his job because of so much of it sort of mandated from the centre. But then on the other hand, we spoke to some teachers who'd kind of, in one multi-academy trust in the north of England, where they felt like they'd all had a part in shaping a literacy strategy and that it had basically allowed subject specialists to come together and learn off one another and, and then roll out something that works. And they, they felt quite passionate about it and were quite clear that it was the map that had allowed it to happen. Um, I think it's probably worth saying there's, there's obvious different approaches within different maps in terms of some are, are very centrally run and others are more of a kind of a loose collection of schools. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting to, to think about how it actually changes the job of teaching or could potentially change the job of teaching. I thought what was really interesting in your piece was how you could see that you could have two very centralised approaches and one one I can imagine being completely disempowering to teachers mm. where, where it is top down and prescriptive and you maybe have a very small team at the top deciding how things should go and then just passing it down but one of the examples you one of the people you spoke to I think it was the the primary trust in 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 the north of England I can't remember which one but as you yeah, remember, Delta, yeah Delta. and and they were talking about it being a collaboration and you could see that being you know being a real strength if it was a genuine collaboration yeah. and you worked out the best and it was an ongoing thing and, and you know having lots of minds on it rather than one so I, I found it fascinating and sharing that expertise yeah exactly and what a great way to solve workload yeah and you can share schemes of work you can share approaches I mean, that's a really interesting point for me was that workload thing on the one hand you if you want teachers to have individual autonomy to make their own lessons and mm. be creative that takes time on the other hand you want to reduce workload and make the, the profession more attractive and how do you achieve both yeah can you achieve both and I think the art of getting it right is acknowledging when you've got an experienced teacher who knows what she's doing or he or she knows what they're doing and they want to maybe deviate from the plan slightly to have the flexibility to allow that to happen mm. because of course if you've got a teacher who's um, an expert in a particular area when they're teaching their lessons they can obviously teach it to a different level than what another teacher could who's not an expert in that yeah. area and I've got friends who work in maths who, if they're caught teaching off plan, we pulled in, told off, really? can't do that. Like almost all of their years of experience tossed aside because yeah. you haven't followed this plan. But if you if you have the ability to teach in further depth, or if you're given a class where they can they can take the ideas further, of course you should take that chance. That's our professional judgment. If you don't treat people like professionals, then like you said. We're becoming like the, in the article, the teachers felt like they were computers, like automatons. Like, mm. where's the art in it anymore? I guess you need quite a lot of you need a leadership with real confidence, don't mm. you? Who, who, 
who allows it not yeah. to be hierarchical and and can pick out what you know wh when there's when you need exceptions to the rules and and not be pig headed about it. That's what he initially as well about teachers very early in their careers compared to yes. later in their careers yeah. and, and, and again that flexibility just for mm. individual situations. And putting your ego to one side and saying oh actually yes although I'm senior to you you know more about me on this sub subject so I'm going to defer to you and that's what a good leader is who can yeah. who can put their ego to one side and make the decision. Yeah I mean another piece related to that in the magazine today um, it's to do with Ofsted is going to be making the curriculum you know, up front and centre in its inspection regime. So we've got um, Claire Seeley, a uh, London head teacher, writing about well, her ideas on how you can build a, a primary school curriculum. Mm. And I mean, Claire's very much on the um, knowledge-rich curriculum side of, of these mm. debates. Um, but I mean, Gwanya, I mean, she's talking about all sorts of things here. I mean, one is, you know, secondary schools using their sort of expertise to help primary schools when they're building these curriculums. Um, yeah. I mean, are these things you think are, are feasible? Can all schools do this? It's a fantastic idea and it's definitely where we, we should be going, especially when you think that all of these things that we're teaching children in primary has to be joined up to what they're doing in secondary. You don't want repetitions, you don't want too much crossover, you've got to put the foundations there so that what, what's built on later on has got a strong, a strong base to build from. It would just be such a shame because it's for, in order for it to happen, you have to have time, you have to have the, it has to be facilitated by the secondary school and the primary school. And it's, it's a really difficult thing to make, to get to, get to work. And time, time and money again, isn't you it? Need, you need a head like Claire who's on board and will, will make sure it does happen because if, if you can get it right, it would be fantastic. But in theory at least, doesn't the National Curriculum do that for you? Because it's been worked out that you know, what should build on, on what and what should be taught in primary schools and what should be taught in secondary schools, is that...? No. 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 So it's, um, for example, if you take English, they, with the SPAG test they introduced mm -hmm. in, in Year 6, so they planned it up until Year 6 and then stopped. Mm -hmm. So there's no crossover, no clear crossover for when you go into secondary, so the teachers are the ones that have to put that in place. I can't speak for history and, and RE and other subjects, but... I know in English, that it would be lovely if, the, if, as part of the national curriculum, they said, OK, all Year 6 classes must study a Midsummer Night's Dream. And mm. then we know that when they come to secondary, we wouldn't do a Midsummer Night's Dream, and we can pick texts that would build upon the, that knowledge of Shakespeare and, and follow it through. But at the moment, it's not, it's not like that. It's down to individual schools and their own context to make those decisions. I mean, I think it's also worth reading Claire's article. She's got lots of points about and difference between episodic and semantic memory and, and different thoughts she has on how schools should build one and not the other and, and the, the knowledge and skills debate. So mm. definitely worth a read, that one. Um, controversial for some, no doubt. Um, I think we'll leave things there. Um, thanks very much, guys, and um, speak to you all next week. Mm.